Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. We are going to change gears a bit today and uh, look at uh, Paul's ministry in Athens. I'm calling it Reaching the Unreached. And um, that's in Acts chapter 17. We'll read from verse 16 to 34. Acts chapter 17, reading from verse 16 to 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler say, wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, Maybe, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives, all man, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own prophets, poets have said, uh, you, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In times of ignorance, he overlooked, uh, but uh, uh, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all <coughs> by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, some, uh, but some men joined him and believed and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Missions has a lot of important dimensions, and all these dimensions are important. But there's, but there's a burning need when you think of missions, and that is the unreached. People who are out of touch with the gospel. And Paul's heart burned with a passion for the unreached. And this passage gives us the most uh, comprehensive description of his ministry, among the unreached that we find in the book of Acts. Um, verses 16 and 17 show us his passion for the lost. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is for his friends to come uh, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, that word provoked is a strong word. Uh, it is the word out of which we get paroxysm in English. Paroxuneo is the word. Paroxysm is a fit. Uh, Paul was in a rage. Uh, this word is often used to describe people who are when, when they are very angry. He was confronted by beautiful words, 
works of art. And what he saw behind that beauty was idolatry. And, and that was the same attitude that you find in the Old Testament. People missing what God made them for. And that is terrible. Now the, the Jews, of course, were not idolatrous, but they rejected Jesus. And uh, Paul talking about uh, the Jews in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3 says, I have great sorrow and un unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Uh, Bob Pierce, who was the founder of World Vision, said, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And usually when we think of that, we think of hunger, oppression, poor health uh, conditions, natural disasters, and those things break the heart of God. And it's very important that we Christians should be involved in those things. In fact, I have a, I have a, long, a, a longing to see more and more Christians go into professions that deal with issues like this. That Christians consider going into social work and, um, and uh, uh, politics and other things that can deal with these issues. But there is a more serious need than even these. And that need is lostness. People are lost without Christ. And the, the, the Old Testament prophets had a similar revulsion. And they thundered against the Jews when they realized that these Jews were, were going after idols. But the response here is very different to that of the Jews, that, that of the prophets to the Jews. The Old Testament people knew the word of God. And they willfully rejected after having received God's um, God's revelation. These people didn't know. So Paul didn't, he was angry inside, but he didn't express that anger. Instead, we are told in verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So on the one hand, there was this spirit that was, um, the, the, a, a spirit that was provoked. And on the other you find a spirit that is restrained. Um, restrained uh, in, in spite of the provocation. Um, and the firm belief in the lostness caused them, caused him to, talk, to reason with them. He treated them with respect. And I think people who don't know Christ, we have to treat with respect and reason with them. Um, because uh, very often they don't know uh, about the message. And, um, and so the, the, there is this combination of restraint and hurt, brokenness over the lostness of people. I was once in a Buddhist temple uh, because uh, some of the people, uh, our ministry had gone and a lot of people had got converted and there was a lot of difficulties, a lot of problems. And uh, so the believers told me, you should go and meet the, the uh, chief priest of the temple. So I went to the temple. Now in the, in the Buddhist system, uh, when, when a lay person comes to meet a monk, they have to sit on the ground and he sits on the chair. This priest was much younger than me, but I sat on the ground, he was on the chair, and there were a group of about 20 people just hurling accusation after accusation. Now I had gone to win, um, to win the hearts of these people. So as they were hurling accusation after accusation, I tried to reason, tell them, this is what we are doing. This is who we are. And um, it, was a, it was a challenging time. Um, and uh, the, cat, the temple cat came and sat next to me. Uh, there's an unwritten rule in my family, the family that I grew up in, that cats are not friends of humans. Um, I had a brother who had a club uh, when he was a small boy. And they had rules for this club. And one of the rules was you can kill cats. <laughs> of course, they didn't do that. But, you know, it, that's the attitude of my family to cats. But here was the temple cat beside me. And for the sake of the gospel, I stroked the cat. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, when we go into society, we respect the people according to how, uh, uh, as people, who were created by God. And sometimes, according to the position they have in society, 
In our cultures, the Buddhist monk is like the mayor of the town. And if that is the case, I, as an ordinary citizen, must treat the monk with respect. So uh, that is our response when we meet people who don't know Christ, even though we are broken inside about their lostness. This was the response of Jesus when he met the woman of Samaria. He didn't say, hi, I'm Jesus, can I help you? He said, can you help me? Can you give me? He treated her with respect. And today, as we think of the lost, there are different categories in which we can uh, put the lost. Uh, like yesterday, we saw those who party, who booze, uh, who are involved in the rock culture and treat God with scant respect. Practicing homosexuals, alcoholics, idol, idol worshippers, people who dabble in the, in the occult, terrorists. We treat them with respect as a human being deserves to be treated. There are several terrorists who have come to Christ in our ministry. And some of them are now pastors. We have some staff workers who, are, uh, who have come to Christ. While they were in that movement, they began to see questions, uh, have questions. And they came, I, I remember once I was in the north. I'm a Sinhalese. I'm from the opposite race. And uh, a guy who was in one of the movements came to meet our worker. And I saw him. And they didn't tell him that I'm a, I'm a Sri Lankan, I'm a Sinhalese. Uh, but later, he became a Christian. Uh, and not only did he become a Christian, today he's uh, our, one of our senior most leaders in our ministry. He's our training director. So, so we look at people through the eyes of Christ as people who need the Savior. Uh, the person who took over from me uh, he was, um, as the National Director of Youth for Christ, uh, he went to the north to a town and he started his ministry there. And uh, he did something. He put uh, the Youth for Christ board right in the building where he was living. Um, some of our staff had told him, maybe that's not the wisest thing to do right as you, as you get started. But um, he said, no, 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 we have to do this. Uh, and he put that board. And... Um, one day, a person at about 12 o'clock in the night, fully drunk, began to scream and shout obscenities uh, at him. And all the neighbors got up, and uh, it was, he was just shouting, 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 take that board off. This is not a Christian area. You cannot have a Christian board there. And, you know, and so he called one of the leaders in Colombo. This was many years ago. Uh, and, uh, and asked him, what shall I do? And the leader said, take the board off. It's unwise to put a board like this as you go. Uh, so uh, that night he took the board off, but this fellow was drunk and he was really hurling abuse at him. In the morning, uh, my, my, my colleague felt, I must go and see this man. So in the morning he got up and he went to the house of this person. And when he went to the house, his wife said, Oh, it's a good thing you have come. My, my, you must go and talk to my husband. So he went and talked to the husband. He said, oh, you have come. I'm so happy you came. I couldn't sleep last night because I was shouting and shouting and shouting to you. And you were smiling. I couldn't believe this. And they, and these two became good friends after that. In fact, when they had to leave this house and go to another house, he is the one who went all over trying to find a house for this person. So we are broken by people's lostness, but we treat them with respect and with the dignity that is afforded to a person who has been created by God. Well, we are told that he reasoned in the synagogue. Now that word reasoned is dialegomai, in which we get from which we get the word dialogue. It's used 10 times in Acts uh, 17 to 24 to describe Paul's ministry. So uh, there was some sort of dialogue. Now this is not equal to the classic understanding of dialogue. In the classic understanding of dialogue, each one shares their ideas uh, and learn from each other in a quest for truth. When Christian, of course we can learn from others. 
uh, and we'll acknowledge when we learn from people of other faiths. For example, my Muslim neighbors, I have my immediate neighbors are Muslims. Uh, they are wonderful neighbors. And I have learned a lot about good neighborliness from my Muslim neighbors. Because when my daughter was sick, they did so many things to help us. And they were wonderful neighbors. So I can learn from them. And I acknowledge it. We can learn. Um, a non-Christian medical scholar can write a very good book on medicine. And we can learn from them. But the aim of Paul in this dialogue was not only to learn from these people, but to persuade them to accept the gospel. So, in the same passage, you find the word persuade, actually in the, in, in the whole, from 17 to 28, chapter 17 to 28, um, Paul uses the word persuade, they, they use the word persuade seven times regarding Paul's evangelism. Uh, and even in Athens, you see this, verse 18, he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The word preaching is evangelizo, from which we get the word evangelism, to bring good news, to preach good tidings. Verse 19, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting. So a gospel was being presented, but in the process, there was dialogue, there was a response. So we believe that people must be persuaded to accept the gospel. Because we believe that the creator of this world has spoken to the world's need. And this is the only answer to the world's greatest need. It must be proclaimed. I was traveling with a, uh, to a very Buddhist area. And I was seated in, um, on a train. And I was seated next to a Buddhist and we were chatting. And when he found out what I was doing, uh, and that I was going to a very, very Buddhist area, he said, why do you people want to convert us? Can't you help us to be better Buddhists and you can be better Christians? We can help each other. And there is so much disruption that takes place when people become Christians. Why do you want to convert people? And, um, and I said, um, we believe that the creator of this world, seeing the mess the world is in, has provided an answer to the problems of this world. And we have found that answer. Now we have to share this with others. For us not to share would be a selfish thing. I think he understood the reason why we are so eager to tell people about Christ. So when we do that, we will employ whatever means, and among those means is dialogue. Dialogue is very helpful. It's a very helpful and respectful means of communication. It, it indicates our respect for people because we listen to them. Very often when I'm talking to a non-Christian, he may talk more than I. I try to slip in the gospel wherever I can, but sometimes he may talk more than I talk. Um, and um, it, it, it's a way to keep them engaged through, uh, as, as we are going through very unfamiliar territory. Uh, the gospel is very unfamiliar to them. So it keeps them engaged. It's a way to know what is getting through. <clears throat> because very often, <clears throat> when we talk to them, <clears throat> they understand something very different to what we intend them to understand. Uh, I was once speaking at a club, <clears throat> at one of our Youth for Christ clubs, and I heard that there was a Buddhist there. And uh, after the meeting, I went and talked to him. And I asked him, well, what, what do you think about what I said? He said, oh, very good. I really appreciated your message. In fact, I was speaking on John 3.16, and I thought that it would very clearly show how Christianity was so different to any other religion. But he said it was a very good message. In fact, our religion teaches the very same thing that you, uh, that you said. It was a bit of a shock to me. He had got my Christian words and given Buddhist meanings to those words and come out with a Buddhist message out of my Christian evangelistic message. And so we need to, and, and talking, getting feedback really helps to understand what, what they understand. Then we come to verse 17, and I have used a big word, contextualization. I will tell you what that means as we go on. But verse 17 says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. 
Now, the marketplace was what was called the Agora. Uh, it was a public place. It was the main public place in the city. This is where economic, political, cultural things were enacted. Uh, it was the city, Athens, of course, was the city of Socrates. And he lived 450 years before Paul. But there is an ancient description of Socrates that says that he was seen in the marketplace when it was most crowded and he would enter into conversation with those he meets. So here was Paul in the city of Socrates using the method of Socrates. His speech also was a very philosophical speech in keeping with the philosophical orientation of the people there. So contextualization is, present, is the presentation and the outworking of the gospel in a way that is appropriate to the context of the people. We present the unchanging gospel and we live out the unchanging gospel, but it's done in a way that is appropriate to the people, to the context of the people. I was just writing down what I thought maybe some of the contexts in which the people of Ireland live. There is the urban Irish person. There is the rural, the Catholic, the Protestant. Within those, you get children, youth, young adults, adults, elderly. Then you get the rich and the poor. You get unemployed people. You get the gangs. All different cultures within one country. The gospel doesn't change, but the way we express it changes. But this is different from syncretism. In syncretism, in the efforts to identify with people, essential elements of the gospel are dropped, and elements incompatible with the gospel are taken on. You are trying to identify and you do things that you shouldn't do. In the practice, uh, in the way we present Christianity and practice Christianity. So let me tell some examples uh, about how this, how this takes place. Um, sometimes we have politicians who are Christians, supposedly, and they will go to a Hindu temple, and when they go to the temple, they will worship at the temple. Because uh, when you go on a procession, uh, and you, you usually stop at the temple, and these politicians, even though they are Christians, they worship at the temple. Now that is syncretism. That is not acceptable. We had one of our great politicians who was a Tamil leader, and he was one of the people who wanted change, uh, political change for the Tamil people, and he was a Christian. And he would take part in these processions. And when they come to the Hindu temple, everybody goes in, he stays outside. He was involved in society. He, he did a lot of things with the people, but he didn't compromise his faith. When we began to work among Buddhists and Hindus, around 1978, uh, Youth for Christ had, had grown, and then what happened was the, the youth fellowships grew. We had been working with non-Christians, with nominal Christians. Youth fellowships grew, and we realized now we must leave the church, church Christians and go to the unreached. So we started studying. We studied, we studied Buddhism, we studied Hinduism, we studied the culture, we realized that our music was very different to their music. So we had our staff go and learn music and drama from Buddhist and Hindu musicians and drama people, because those were two means which we used a lot to communicate the gospel. We had to change a lot. Uh, I'm very, very fond of music. And I had grown up in a westernized home. So the music I loved was Bach and you know uh, the old Methodist hymns and all of that. And, um, and I used to, I have sung, I, I used to sing solos and all of that. And then I knew, but my ministry is entirely in not non-English speaking audiences. I, I hardly ever speak in English at home. And, um, and so uh, I had to, uh, I thought, well, let me, let me try and sing this stuff. But I soon realized, man, my style is just so different. It's going to take me some time. So I went on a Western music fast. Um, actually, normally when I'm anywhere, I'm listening to music. Even right now, I am on 91 point something. Uh, is it uh, classic FM, you know? Uh, but so I thought for about three, four years, I didn't listen to any music, Western music. I just listened to Eastern music. And after some time, I felt, now I think I'm able to sing. Uh, and so one day I was in a village, and the people said, Ajit, you need to sing a song. 
I thought, oh, these village people are not so discerning. Maybe this is a good place for me to start. So I sang a song in Sinhalese. And the meeting was over. And I was walking into the house of our staff worker when I heard the volunteers all having a good laugh. And they were imitating me singing. And they were having a good laugh. So this is a big change. <clears throat> and, uh, and for me, it took many years. Now I lead worship in, in Sinhalese. But it took me a long time to make this change. But when you're passionate for the gospel, you cannot afford comfort. If comfort is going to make, give you a distance from people who need Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win more of them. Then he says in verses 20 and 21. I became, to, to win the weak, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. To win those under the law, I became as one under the law. To win those not having a law, I became as one not having a law. Then in verse 22, he says, to, to win the weak, he didn't say as, I became weak. To win the weak, I became weak. I think that was the hardest. We all like to operate out of, a, uh, out of a position of strength. I'm helping you. I'm, I, I, I can, you are beholden to me. We like to operate like that. But when you go to the unreached, sometimes people are threatened by your power and, um, and all that it goes with it. So sometimes it may be that we have to become weak, just like they, those who feel weak, so that we can identify with the weak and win them for Christ. Then they are disarmed and they become receptive to the gospel. So in verse 22 and the second part, uh, this is in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. Earlier Paul had said in verse 16, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That can be just words. But in the verses that followed, he backs it up with a life of sacrifice. The only way the gospel will go to the ends of the earth will be when Christians are willing to make adjustments. And Paul did that. When he was there, he worked with them. Then, uh, so, so then what happened is that uh, Paul's discussions attracted attention. Uh, and verse 18 says, some called him a babbler. Uh, and some say he's talking about foreign gods. Then verses 19 and 20, 20. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring uh, strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now the Areopagus was the council that had oversight of the educational, moral, and religious welfare of the community. So uh, Luke uh, gives a report of his address that went. And he starts by making a point of contact with these people. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Now, he starts by saying, you are very religious. Some of the old translations said, you are very superstitious. But actually, this was not a criticism. Neither was it a compliment. In the rules, uh, the, when the, area, the day that the Areopagus was opened, the speech that somebody gave, uh, gave the rules for debate on, in the Areopagus. And one of the rules that was given is that flattery is not allowed in the Areopagus. So if Paul was giving, uh, flattering these people, he, he would have disqualified himself from further participation in, 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 the, in the discussion. But he was just making an observation. He, uh, he, he, uh, he was upset by the, religious, by the form this religiousness took. But he acknowledged that they were religious people. It was a point of contact. It's like a pilot 
finding uh, some landing strip where he can land. Paul was looking for a point of contact which can help him launch into a sharing of the gospel. William Wilberforce, the great politician, uh, was, a, was, a, was also a wonderful witness for Christ. And in that wonderful film, uh, Amazing Grace, about his life, was very good. Uh, but it missed that aspect of his life, of course, because they were trying to, uh, it was a secular film. Uh, but he was also a wonderful witness for Christ. And he would write the names of the people he wants to talk about Christ. And he would also write what he called launchers. This is how I'm going to launch into sharing the gospel with this person. So we are always looking for launchers. Our, we, our minds are open and watchful to find. And then in verse 23, he gives what you might call an acknowledged aspiration of these people. It says, I, I found there also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. You see, the Greeks attributed natural phenomena that they encountered to different gods. So there's one God for the, for, for the rain, there's one God for crops and like that. For all the things, there was a God. And they wanted to be on the good side of all the gods. They were not certain whether they knew all these gods. So they had an altar for the unknown God to ensure that no God was overlooked uh, to the possible harm of the city. They knew that their picture of God was incomplete. They wanted a completed picture. So they had this unknown God to complete that picture. And Paul says, what you proclaim, worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Now Paul was not accepting their worship. That's not what he's saying here. Um, he was upset about it. Later he asked them to repent of it. But he approached people with the belief that what they are looking for only God can supply. Now they, now they may not know that they are looking for God. Uh, in fact, they may even say there is no God. But our creator is the only one who truly satisfies and fulfills what people are looking for. And we are always looking at people with those eyes. These people are looking for something. We know Jesus alone can truly satisfy that aspiration. And of course, that helps us to go with confidence. People need the Lord. They are, people are looking for only what God can give. They may not accept that, but, this, but that's the way it is. Uh, Blase Pascal, the great uh, uh, mathematician and genius, uh, wrote, uh, was also a wonderful Christian, and he was writing his apologetic for Christianity, uh, a good defense of Christianity. He died before that, but it was published uh, later, and um, uh, his works were taken together and published. And in this, he says that in everyone, there is a God-shaped vacuum. People are searching for something that only God can give. For example, in verse 27, he talks about how God uh, made them that they should seek God in the hope that they might find, feel their way toward him and find him. They were made with an innate religiousness. And it is expressing itself in spirituality. Um, and so today when we see spirituality getting very important, people are looking the wrong direction for spirituality. But we should realize that what they are looking for, God can fulfill. And we have to ask, how can we make this contact? so that we can show them that God can fulfill this need. In Christianity, of course, the, the difference is that God sought us. And um, that as we seek him, he encounters us in a personal relationship. And it is in that personal relationship uh, uh, with a loving and holy God that we find the, the deep, the depth of fulfillment that God can give, that spirituality can give. And pursuing that relationship, deepening that, is the heart of Christian spirituality. Now, there are different forms of spirituality, but this is the only one. We are all relational beings. And uh, this is a holistic spirituality that includes our whole being. Our sins are forgiven. 
Guilt is taken away. We entered into a love relationship with our creator. We are given a purpose to live in life. This is the answer that people are looking for. John 10.10 says, I have come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. But we have to get our act together. I think it's a real shame that people looking for spirituality had to turn to the east to look for it. Because the answers are there in the Bible. There is the depth of meditation, of spiritual experience, which I think we lost uh, along the way so that they had to look outside for it. Our job then is to ask, what are their questions? How is their homesickness for God expressed? It's not easy to find, especially today in the West, because people are so confident, seem to be so confident without God. So we have to ask, if Jesus is the answer, what is the question? We have to look for those questions and present the gospel as an answer to those questions. We ask the answer the questions that people are asking. And through that, through that entree, we begin to ask, answer the questions that they should be asking about how can I have a relationship with God. So we have our homework to do. There are different types of people who are going, through, going for different things for fulfillment. Spiritism, astrology, psychic phenomena, spirituality, sexual indulgence, drugs, alcohol, excessive partying, hard work, sports, driving ambition to succeed. Some of these things are good, but they will never fully satisfy. So we look for ways to show that Christ alone fully satisfies. So, so, so this is part of our job in our church. Uh, the way people came was people had needs. And when they had needs, uh, their neighbors, the Christians told their neighbors, come to our church, we'll pray for you. Our God will meet your need. And they came, and some came once and never came again. But others continued to come, and they met the Savior. And they, uh, and they were converted and became Christians. So... So he, he met, started with their felt need. Now, when you look at that talk, verses 24 to 26, you see that he is introducing God. In verse 24, he says, The God who made the heaven word and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Um, the gospel starts with God. Now, with Jewish audiences, he didn't have to do much description of God because they already had a biblical understanding of God. But with people who don't have a biblical understanding of God, we have to start uh, with explaining who this God is. Otherwise, we can't proceed much further. And, and that was his main theme, both in Lystra and in Athens, where he was talking to totally unreached people. Similarly, in the West. Today, the Western people's understanding of God is changing rapidly. Uh, they are moving in a more pantheistic direction. Pantheism means everything is God. And so, uh, and so today, uh, there is no personal God as such, rather a life force, an energy that can be tapped, a divinity inside of us that can be awakened through yoga or through meditation or whatever. That's what a lot of people today are thinking about when they think of God. The Buddhists say that God is not necessary, and they have gods, but those gods are inferior beings, inferior to the Buddha. The Hindus say that have all sorts of ideas of God. Some Hindus are pantheistic that say everything is God. Some are polytheistic saying that there are many gods. Others are monotheistic. They are devoted to one God, such as the Hare Krishna people. The Muslims have a different understanding of God. God is so transcendent and he's not personal like the Christian God. He doesn't relate to us in that way. And um, uh, they focus on the mercy of God in forgiving uh, and God, this God is not bound by rules such as the rules of justice therefore it is not necessary for him to satisfy the demands of justice if he's going to forgive us therefore the death of Christ was unnecessary in their understanding of God there are some Christians who have a completely wrong idea of God they think of God like a doctor they don't have a relationship with God uh, are, God's influence is confined to a few needs in their life. We run our lives according to our desires, 
not according to God's will. But when we have a need, we go to this God. So you can see how today people have different understandings of God. And we have to look for that understanding and then try to explain what the biblical understanding of God is. So when we have our camps, the first um, session that we have is about God. Who is God? And then we talk about who is Jesus, you know, um, and, and describe his life. This is the man Jesus because we're asking them to follow Christ. And so we say this is the type of person he was. You need to know whom you're going to follow. Then we come to the death of Christ and explain that he did what he did for us. So, um, so, so that's what Paul did. Uh, so then you, if, if you look at verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, and even some of your own prophets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Now he's taking two quotations from their prophets, and he quoted them with approval. You see, as we seek to communicate the gospel, and we find that it is different to other ideologies, if there is something we can agree with them on, we'll agree with that, you know, and even admire some good thing. If you, if you meet a Muslim who's a very good father, and some of these Muslim families have a lot to teach about family life uh, to, to, Western, to us Christians, and, um, and you can tell them, I admire this. Uh, and, but that connection that we have with them is used to buttress our case for Christianity. And when we do that, we are not trying to show that we are better than them. We are not trying to score points like in an argument where you argue and then score points and win the argument. As Stephen Neal said, we endeavor to meet them at their highest. We'll accept all that is good that is in them, but we know that that will not save them. Now, we don't have to be afraid of this because we know that Christ is supreme. He is a class by himself. He is God incarnate, the only mediator between God and human beings. Now, um, when uh, you, uh, Paul's uh, uh, this speech has been used by, by some people to show that all religions teach the same thing, and that you hear that all the time. Every religion says the same thing. They tell us to be good. That's not what we are saying. Christianity actually moves along a different axis to other faiths. If you can have the next slide. <clears throat> um, uh, where, where uh, I, I don't know whether you can see that. Is it clear? Yes. Um, you see, uh, there is Christianity and there is other faiths and there are points of intersection. But those points of intersection are really peripheral. They don't come to the heart. Of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He, 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 through the work of Jesus, God has won the salvation. And the result is that as a result of this salvation, you will do this and do this. And some of these things we do, the other, other Christians, uh, non-Christians, will agree with us. The similarities are few and peripheral. Well, uh, then we go on in verse 30, uh, to, um, he, he, he calls them to repentance. And, um, and he says, uh, we ought not to think that the divine being um, is like gold or silver. And uh, Sorry, verse 30. In times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So there's a call to repent. There's a call to change. And that is necessary. I, I still remember... Uh, a Buddhist lady in our church. She had come, I had been doing a, a, a course with her on what the gospel is. And then I came to the point after several weeks where we could ask her, are you willing to give your life to Christ? And she said, yes. And then I told her, you understand that this means no more going to the temple, no more worshiping idols. And she said, yes. And she gave her life to Christ. And she lived as a wonderful Christian, maybe another 15, 20 years, and then she died. But, um, but so they have to change. They have to give up their past life. And then Jesus as the judge, verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this 
uh, so the judgment is presented you notice that we must uh, we must argue for the reality of judgment today um, and um, and he he introduces jesus by the doctrine of judgment it's very interesting introduces jesus by the doctrine of judgment um, uh, these people were sophisticated people and yet they needed to be confronted with the reality of judgment because there is an innate sense in everyone that those who do wrong must be judged in romans 1:32 it says they they uh, even though they do these things and approve of those who do it they know that those who do these things will die deep down there is this innate sense and this is not something that is just for simpletons you think oh yeah you can teach talk about hell to simpletons but 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 this is something that requires i think the greatest minds of the church some of the greatest minds of the church gave a lot of time to trying to explain doctrine to the people of their age people like jonathan edwards charles finney cs lewis and i think today we need that too because people have done all sorts of things to try and erase this idea from their mind so they have for example hell hell has been trivialized people say what the hell go to hell we had a hell of a time in this place they what they should be afraid of they have trivialized uh, francis schaeffer said that people have built a roof over their heads so that they won't see feel this, the the rays of truth from coming and impacting them they know deep down that sin has to be punished but they have built a roof to prevent that and very often the roof is to trivialize these things make a joke out of it and uh, francis hafer says our job is to take the roof off you know so that people will see the truth i still remember talking to a friend of mine uh, who was um, actually my roommate in seminar in in university uh, he had been uh, in a in 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 seminary as a as a boy you know in the catholic they have these seminaries for children and he had been there then he rejected everything and was living quite a, a, a riotous life and uh, people were quite amused they said the demon and the angel are uh, in the same room <laughs> you know because we were roommates and i used to talk to him about christ and tell him you know and one day in my desperation i said if you don't repent you will go to hell and he told me where else do you think i want to go all my friends are going to be there we can go and have a great time in hell but that's not the picture of hell that we have in the bible it is a terrible place so we need to warn people find the best way to warn uh, artists uh, drama people to bring back to resurface this idea of retribution uh, there is um, somebody uh, wrote a book on atonement in literature and went through western literature right from the before christ era right to the present and he said in all of these things there is no atonement without satisfaction in other words when people do wrong they have to be punished retribution to 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 show people that people have to answer for their actions you know some people said oh we have to give the positive message it's very wrong to be giving people's negative messages like that what if a meteorologist knew that a tsunami was coming and he said oh i have to give a positive message i can't be giving them negative messages we would accuse that person of criminal negligence something more serious than the tsunami is coming and my dear friends we need to look for ways we need to be working battling struggling how can we communicate this this message to the people of this age well uh, he went on and uh, talked about the resurrection and when he talked about the resurrection um, some people scoffed at him he had to stop speaking and and we are told that somehow ever believed including one of the members of the areopagus that's a wonderful result you know some people say that he was a failure here he was not a failure those working with the unreached know how difficult it is and here even a member of the areopagus a supreme court judge maybe uh, was converted 
and accepted Christ. So, um, uh, you, you see the challenge before us. Here are people who are distant from the gospel. Now we have to make the contact and get to them. Somehow, somehow get to them so that we can have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. And may that challenge inspire you. May it energize your prayers. And may you do everything that you can do to help the gospel to go out to those who have not heard and who do not know about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that this is a challenge. It is not easy to make our present generation to understand this message. But we also know that ultimately what they are looking for, only you can satisfy. Oh, we want to be faithful, Lord. We want to be faithful. We want to do what you want us to do. We, we want to spend our lives to devote our prayers, to give our ambitions, to do our part, to bring people who are distant from you within the sound of the gospel. Use us, we pray. In Jesus' name. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.